I received the most amazing gift this week. Perfect for Father's Day. Let me explain. Two letters from my father, written when I was one year old during World War II, while he was deployed to the Philippines as a captain of infantry in the Army. These two letters were handwritten and lengthy. And they caused me to reflect and think about my upbringing because these letters were written. Here he is in his late 20s, writing to his youngest sister, who is 18, almost 19, just leaving high school and going off to college at the University of Arkansas. Their father had passed away eight years earlier. And so she had grown up without a father in those most important years as a teenager. Now that she had left home, my dad, even in his situation, was compelled to write to her and to step in where his father would have. And he gave to her the most amazing counsel and advice about life, about men in great detail, <laughs> about things that could be problematic for her, but advice on how to avoid that. Advice about finances and guarantee that he would stand behind her and stand up for her in every situation, citing the fact that their father was no longer there, and as her older brother, he felt compelled to say these things. After reading these letters, which just about floored me, I reflected upon my upbringing and how this man, who everyone thought very highly of, he was greatly respected by friends and family and everyone we encountered. He was a strict disciplinarian. He brought his military training home with him, like many others did, and so in post-war, mid-20th century America, I experienced this for many years. And the kinds of things that he was teaching her and saying to her and explaining and counseling about, I can remember vividly having those same experiences with him. Today I want to pay tribute to my father, who in spite of his human failings was a wonderful man who taught me everything I needed to know to be a man in the middle of the 20th century. Thank God for him. 
the character values he emphasized and nurtured as my father, responsibility, excellence, effort, perseverance, respect, and kindness. I remember his high standards and his unconditional love. You think I'm kidding or exaggerating. If you even knew a portion of the problems I caused him as a teenager, Sheila's laughing, you would understand this unconditional love. And not just me, there were eight children in our family and plenty of problems. In his devotion to family, these things I remember so well and inspired me so much. And they helped prepare me for today's scripture text and the gospel in general. I want to home in on the, gospel, on the epistle for this day. It's one of the selections from Galatians. During this month, we have several. We've been reading uh, week by week in our lectionary segments of the book of Galatians. One of my favorites, as my home Bible study group knows, they hear a lot about the book of Galatians. I don't have time to give you even a portion of what I would like, a, a, a strong portion. But let me just say this, an important book. It was perhaps, arguably, but perhaps the first book of the New Testament, written at the very middle of the first century by Paul. It was his only letter sent to a group of churches, not just to one, all those churches in Galatia, that he had gone to on his first missionary journey along with others and had established churches there because he preached the gospel in a powerful way sent by God. As usual, the book of Galatians, the letter to the Galatians, is written to solve problems in churches. He had heard what was going on and he was writing back to them to show them a more excellent way. It has been called, this letter to the Galatians, the Magna Carta, the Magna Carta of Christian liberty. And so I entitled this message today, The Truth That Sets You Free, because that's what Paul is dealing with in this letter to the Galatians. Oh, if I had the time, but I will constrain myself, partly. <laughs> now, you know, in my experience, many false religious teachings I have encountered have made some erroneous use of Jesus' words in John 8, 32, in an attempt to lend credibility to their claims. Those words, of course, you shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. So I want to set the record straight today. 
Historically, this letter has been used of God to unleash the truth of the gospel of grace. In many revivals around the world, from apostolic times, through the Reformation, and down to the present day. My personal experience of faith and understanding of the gospel was radically altered and reshaped through my encounters with the truths found here. I was literally set free to live as a follower of Christ. I won't delay much longer in getting into the text for today. But I want to say first that Paul in, his, in this letter has reminded them of the gospel of grace that he had preached and that they had responded to it was so important because they had deviated from it. They had lost their way. He's, I can summarize it this way. And Paul lays this out in the first chapter. Christ gave himself for our sins. Words used mean he, he died as a substitute. The sacrificial sin offering for all our sins, big or small, past or present, future. He accepted the judgment and condemnation due. He bore the punishment of God's justice against sin. This is his first point of this authentic gospel. Christ gave himself for our sins. The purpose to deliver us from this present evil age. The world, sin, corruption, doom, deliver, that is to rescue or pluck out of, from both the power and the fate of the world. All of this according to the will of God. See, God is sovereign even in man's salvation. Romans 5, 8, God demonstrates his love for us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Or John 3, 16, we all know it. God so loved the world that he gave, he sent first and gave his only son that whoever believes in him might not perish but have everlasting life. The apostolic teaching was always focused on the gospel of grace because it originated with and was learned from Christ himself. Even Paul said, Christ taught me these things. He got them from him. The bottom line has always been the same. Repent of your sins and believe the good news and you will be saved. And Paul validates this gospel in the early parts of this book by his personal testimony. It's a model for us to follow what his former life was like, how he was converted to faith in Christ, and what changes have occurred since then. As the words say, he who once persecuted us is now preaching the faith. 
radical change. Paul had undergone a radical change of life. He had been extremely zealous for Judaism and was bent on violence against Christians. He had set out to completely destroy the fledgling church. But God intervened with grace. Now here's a question. Can I be zealously religious and still need to be saved? It was to such a one, Nicodemus, that Jesus said, you must be born again. And to others, unless you believe that I am he, you shall die in your sins. Zeal doesn't save anyone. Only God's grace can do that. According to the text, Paul was set apart and called to reveal the Son of God. God has his eye on Paul throughout all eternity. Even so, Paul's call and ministry were not due to Paul, but to God and his grace. And so it is with you and me. God's primary call to Paul was the same as it is for every believer, to reveal his son both to him, to him, and through him, to know Christ and to make him known. Does your life validate the gospel you believe and proclaim? Keep that in mind as we look at the text today. Here we have the transition to the new covenant. It was resisted, especially in these churches of Galatia, by those we call Judaizers. They were insisting that in order to be saved, in order to be recipients of this good news and this salvation that we have in Messiah, you must first become a Jew. Men, you must be circumcised. You must obey the Jewish law. Do all of this in order to be saved. The basic issue was what defines the Israel of God? What defines the people of God? The people of the covenant. This passage today in the epistle highlights the Jewish roots of the Christian faith and focuses on Father Abraham and the promises made to him. In our daily office, both morning prayer and evening prayer, we are reminded of these things every day. These promises to Abraham, these blessings which were to come according to the promise, mercy, salvation, forgiveness, we can go on and on. In the morning prayer, the Song of Zechariah, the Benedictus. In the evening prayer, it's Mary's song, the Magnificat, both focusing on this. And so, the question that confronts us from the text 
Is there conflict between law and grace? Law and the gospel. I submit to you, Paul says, no. They are not in conflict. So we need to answer a bunch of questions. What is the purpose of the moral law? Well, it establishes God's holy standard for living in covenant blessing. It's intended to expose sin and unrighteousness. Remember, it's given over four centuries after the promises to Abraham. Ultimately, though, the purpose of the law, and Paul cites it here, is to serve as our tutor. There are a number of words that are used in various translations here. Pedagogus is the word that's translated. In this day, such a one would be appointed among the servants in a family to shepherd, if you will, to be the tutor, to be the guardian of the young children in the family as they were being educated and brought up. They would go everywhere with them. They were their chaperones, if you will, as well. But they took care of them, instructed them, and taught them. In what way is the law our tutor? It shows us ever so clearly how our lives and actions are out of line with God Almighty. Our sinfulness and our impossible need for righteousness. That's how it's our tutor. Paul says it's our tutor to lead us to Christ. You see, the good news is that impossible problem is resolved in Christ. The law leads us to Him. It's a good thing. It's God's holy standard. We ought to be striving to live by it, that moral law. Now, another question, what is the basis for righteousness or salvation? Well, under the law, the basis for salvation and righteousness is we must be perfect. We must perfectly obey the law. As James wrote, if I obey the whole law but offend at any point, I'm guilty of the whole thing. And with that comes a curse because you can't make it that way. That group of perfect people has no members. Now, what's the basis for righteousness and salvation? Under the gospel. Well, it's the, not our righteousness, but the righteousness of God with us. I say it that way because Emmanuel means God with us. Jesus is Emmanuel. But I also wanted to incorporate the fact that often it's taught in the New Testament, especially in the book of Romans, importantly, that it is the righteousness of God that is revealed in the, in the gospel. 
And it's the righteousness ultimately of God with us, Emmanuel, that's imputed to us via what we sometimes call substitutionary atonement. Now, some people shake at that and get upset. Yeah, it's substitutionary because Jesus Christ on the cross, on the cross, he became sin for us. He took our sin upon him. In another place it says, he took the handwriting of ordinances that were against us out of the way, nailing them to his cross. On the cross, he became sin for us. Why? That we might be the righteousness of God, the righteousness of God in him. It's imputed righteousness, substitutionary atonement. It's the righteousness of God with us. That's the only thing that's going to do it. You can't be perfect, but he is, was, and will be. Jeremiah foresaw all of this and used an interesting term for me, uh, one of the titles of God, Yahweh Sidkenu. The Lord our righteousness. Now let's move on because another question has to be answered. How is righteousness acquired and applied? How is this righteousness acquired and replied? Well, we see all the time the gospel proclamation. It calls us to repent and believe. In fact, there's no forgiveness of our sins without repentance. But Paul homes in here in the, in the chapter before this passage, chapter 2 of Galatians, he homes in on the classic written portion about justification by faith. That great lightning rod of the Reformation, if you will. Justification by faith. Now let me say what justification is real quick. It's a legal term. Basically it means you're declared not guilty on a technicality. Okay. No, it's more than a technicality. You're declared not guilty. Some people have explained it, and this is probably the easiest way to understand it. Justification means it's just as though you never sinned. That's what it means. Oh God, can it be? So much to say about this. I love it in Romans. where it's speaking about the gospel and about the righteousness of God being revealed. And it quotes there Habakkuk. Habakkuk 2.4. For the righteous will live by their faith. So earlier in this, the previous chapter of Galatians here in chapter 2, actually verse 20, if you've never memorized that, do so. Galatians 2.20. For I am crucified with Christ, nevertheless I live, yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. And the life that I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. That's the gospel. 
Memorize it. Now, we're talking about how we acquire, how, how righteousness is acquired and how it's applied. Now, Paul says here in verse 27 of our passage today, it's through baptism that we put on Christ. Now, I want you to mark the operative phrase here. That is, that I want you to take note of the operative phrase. Because you ought to have this phrase burned into your brain. Union with Christ. Union with Christ. That's what this is all about. It is crucial, it's critical, it's at the very heart of the gospel. It is what we are destined for. Through baptism, we put on Christ. We come into union with him there. That's our entry point. I love it when conducting baptisms, we get to the point where we Mark the sign of the cross, usually with holy chrism, and pronounce these words, these gospel words. You are sealed with the Holy Spirit and marked as Christ's own forever. It is through baptism that we come. The Book of Common Prayer in, this, in the service reminds us of this, as I just mentioned. But so many other places it speaks of this. For example, in one statement of the gospel, as Paul is writing to Titus in 3.5, he said, it's not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to his mercy that he saved us. Get this, by the washing of regeneration, new birth, and the renewing of the Holy Spirit. This is the new covenant entry point, baptism. Our righteousness is applied, acquired and applied at that time. Jeremiah, in prophesying a New Testament to come, said, a day is coming, saith the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel. And he gives some explanation about what that will entail. And this is the key part for me. And I will put my law within them and write it upon their hearts. It's no longer some external thing that we, ha we have to comply to in order to be right with God, but rather it's something that's in us that comes out of us because the Holy Spirit is there and Christ is in us and we are becoming more and more like Him. That's what it's all about. That's what Paul said in Romans, we are predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son. Because as he wrote to the Corinthians, if any man be in Christ, that's put on Christ, union with Christ, Christ in you, 
if any man be in Christ, is a new creation. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things become new. This is the gospel. This is how righteousness is acquired and applied. By the way, this union with Christ into which we come in baptism, that entry point into the covenant. And as we've said before, that's why that baptismal font is out there. It's at the entry. Many of us will dip and make the sign of the cross as we come in. Not for some strange magic, but rather in a sacramental way, remembering our baptism and our entry into the covenant, our washing of regeneration and renewing in the Holy Spirit. Hmm. But that union with Christ is initiated at that point. But it is fed and strengthened every time we come to the table, to the Eucharist. Union with Christ, the key to it all. And so another question, who is the rightful heir of the promises made to Abraham? That was the big deal here. Who's the rightful heir? Well, if we go back to Genesis in chapter 12 and, and following, when the covenant is laid out and the blessings and promises are, are given, we find that it, it's to Abraham's seed. To Abraham and to his seed. By the way, Zerah in Hebrew, sperma in Greek, where we find it, it's in the singular form, so Paul didn't mess up here. It is to his seed, singular. And he explains here that that is Christ. Those promises were focused upon him. Paul even says the gospel was preached earlier to Abraham by this, that through his seed, all the nations of the earth would be blessed. So Galatians 3.16, he's making this point again. And then those who are in Christ, that is, have put on Christ, verse 29, baptized believers in Jesus Christ, by the way, regardless of ethnicity, regardless of status, social status, caste, or whatever, regardless of your gender, we're all one in Christ. It is, as they say, the ground is level at the foot of the cross. Those who are in Christ share in this and are heirs of the promises of Abraham. And that's the point Paul makes here as well. By the way, this is not replacement theology. Okay? Some call it that. I reject that. I would say it's inclusive theology. Because now, anyone who comes from whatever their DNA tree says, by the way, I have my DNA ancestry run. Interesting results. 
Now I knew what I was. I'm all, every form of Celtic you can be. Uh, Sheila's mostly Irish, I knew that too. But uh, there are some other interesting points in there, but I didn't mean to go there. This is inclusive theology. Inclusive. Not replacement theology. Whether you're Jew or Greek, the gospel was given to both. To the Jew first and also the Greek. Jesus said in the prologue to John's gospel, it's recorded, he came unto his own and his own received him not. But as many as did receive him, to them he gave the power, the authority, the exousia, to be children of God. A lot of misunderstanding comes due to cause and effect in relation to this law and gospel, law and grace business. Cause and effect confusion. What came first, the chicken or the egg? Well, we have an answer. Are we saved by faith or works of the law? That's wrong thinking. I'll show you why. Well, actually, Paul agrees with this, uh, this statement. Faith without works is dead, says James in chapter 2 of his letter, 14 to 26. Faith without works is dead. Hmm. I said, Paul agrees with it. If we carefully read his classic statement of salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, Ephesians 2, 8 through 10. But we seldom hear Verse 10, here's what you hear. For by grace are you saved through faith, not of yourselves. It's a gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. That's great stuff. It's powerful stuff. But here's the agreement with James. Verse 10, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus unto good works. Yes, we need both right faith and right life. It's not faith or works. It's not faith and works, but it's faith that works. You get the difference. Good works are the evidence of saving faith. They are the inevitable manifestation of the indwelling Holy Spirit. Rejecting and suppressing the deeds of the flesh while exhibiting the fruit of the Spirit is what Paul expects of, in his writing. As he says to us, we are to walk in the Spirit. The proof is in the pudding, so they say. If you have saving faith, you will exhibit the proof. 
Short of that, repent and believe the gospel that you might be saved. By virtue of saving faith, we're adopted into the family of God. That's what Paul says in the next chapter. We're adopted in. I wish I had time to explain all of that, but nevertheless, we are adopted. God is our father, just as Abraham is our spiritual father, the father of the faith. See, the Spirit has been poured out in us, crying, Abba, Father. By the way, when you see that, you always see the both together, Abba and Father. Abba, this Aramaic and Hebrew form of dad. Personal, very personal. And pater, the Greek and even Latin form of father. So it wants to make it clear what it is. By the way, if I was a young Israeli running around referring to my dad as Abba, I would not be referring to anyone else. It's only for him. It's very personal. And so we say of God, Abba, Father. Now his unfailing and unconditional love for his children ensures the perseverance of the saints, as they say. When I foul up, he calls me to repentance. And he restores me with even more mercy and grace. You know what mercy is? That's where he withholds what we deserve. What do we deserve for sin? Oh my goodness. Wrath. And grace, what does that mean? He gives me what I don't deserve. He withholds what I deserve in mercy. He gives me what I don't deserve in grace, which is his blessing, which is forgiveness, which is eternal life. It's all the promises of Abraham he gives to me. Now that's the truth that sets you free. We're part of that family of God. And so I, I remember the hymn lyrics to that old hymn. I'm so glad I'm a part of the family of God. Washed in the fountain, cleansed by his blood. Joint heirs with Jesus as we travel this sod. Oh, I'm part of the family. The family of God. On this Father's Day, it's good to remember that. There's not time, but I have a lot of gratuitous family advice for fathers. I will limit it to simply this. Boy, it's hard to limit it. Make prayer and worship in the Word of God a family priority.
promote excellence over mediocrity as a family value. Stress respect, responsibility, effort, and perseverance. Express approval as readily as disapproval. And here we go. Never, never, never give up on your children. Be faithful. Let your children know they are loved unconditionally. What a difference this would make. I know many, most people did not have the relationship with their father that I did. Many don't even have a father present. Some have very abusive and cruel fathers. Some of us are just trying to figure it out. Let your children know they are loved unconditionally. I commend to you this definition of love. This is what God calls us to. This is the love we are to show. This is the love we are to have in the family and elsewhere. This was given to me by a priest 50, 60, 60 years ago. Love is thinking, speaking, and acting toward others so that the highest good will come to them. Let me say it again. Love is speaking, thinking, and acting toward others so that the highest good will come to them. May God lead us and enable us in this way. Let me invite all fathers, grandfathers, fathers-to-be, if there are any out there, to stand for prayer. Would you stand with me for prayer? I'd like to pray as we conclude. Lord, bless these men. Some of them delight in their fathering. For others, it's hard, perhaps very hard. Some are wounded. Hear our confession of sin, of failure, of ignorance. Help us, all of us, to forgive our own fathers for their faults and failings. But Lord, we are not responsible for them, but for ourselves. Help these dads to love their children's mother. May they be good priests in their homes, leading their children to a living faith in the living God. And when the great day comes, and we stand before you, our King and our Judge, may we hear you say, well done, good and faithful Father. Your children have delighted in you, 
and you are eternally blessed. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.